William Wilberforce was tempted on many occasions to throw in the towel in his campaign to end slavery. As a committed Christian and gifted politician, Wilberforce knew that God had placed some great tasks before him and that these tasks were going to take the best effort of his life. By God's enablement, Wilberforce set out to change the basic moral outlook of his country, what he called the Reformation of Manners, so that it would have an effect, an impact on tons of different societal evils. Things like child labor, alcoholism, violence, prostitution, and of course, most famously for him, slavery. But nothing this pervasive or this financially beneficial was going away easily or quickly, And so Wilberforce had a long road ahead of him. So at which points along that road do you think that you would have quit? Wilberforce was tempted to quit because of popularity waning. He was into people-pleasing, but when he became a Christian, he realized that he had to get rid of that people-pleasing mentality, and he needed to run full speed after what Jesus had put in his life. And when his friends, when society at large saw this guy begin to follow Jesus and threaten their social lives by taking away some of the things that they loved, they turned on him. Would you have been tempted to quit when you lost your popularity? Maybe you would have wanted to throw in the towel when many people were threatening to hurt you or your family. Maybe when the death threats started rolling in. Now, this brutal opposition politically and physically for William Wilberforce. I think I would have been able to push through unpopularity or death threats. That's my life at Christ Community Church. <laughs> but I probably would have wanted to give up when the illnesses set in. A year after long year with intense and stressful battles, this had a wear and tear on his body. He went through tremendous illnesses over and over again. Maybe if you'd made it this far with Wilberforce, then just the sheer length of the fight would have gotten to you. All said and done, slavery was finished in England after a 34-year battle on the part of William Wilberforce and his friends. In fact, three days before his death, the bill to abolish slavery was passed, and then that guy finally got to get some rest. You know, what, what if he bailed along the way? What, what would happen if he would have bailed out on his mission? He would have disobeyed God. The slavers would have continued their unjust, brutal business. And he wouldn't have served, in the words of Abraham Lincoln, a guy who had some interest in this issue himself, as, quote, the great pioneer and father of the abolitionist movement. Man, I'm glad that he didn't bail. What in your life have you bailed on? What things in your life are you maybe even tempted to bail on right now? Like you just keep hearing, it's just going to take too much work. I don't really care that much anyway anymore. That's the sloth talking. The seven deadly sins and their cure, that's our series. We've covered lust, gluttony, greed, pride, and today we're on sloth. The sloth is a mammal that spends most of its life hanging upside down from tree branches in the jungle. It's a hard life for the sloth. Due to some specially designed claws, this activity, hanging upside down, takes absolutely no effort. Sloths only move when necessary, and even then they do it slowly. They move at a staggering 6.5 feet per minute. These things are slow. They eat leaves, but only those leaves that are within reach. They don't seek any shelter, they don't build nests, they sleep 10 to 15 hours a day. 
And due to passivity, sloths can't be trained. So if you want a pet sloth, you can count on it not responding to fetch or the command to shake. They'll do really well with sit and stay. In the realm of nature, the sloth perfectly embodies the sin of sloth. In the realm of scripture, sloth's counterpart is the foolish, sinful sluggard. All throughout the works on the seven deadly sins, when you get to the deadly sin of sloth, you'll see these words quoted from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 26, verses 14 and 15 say, As a door turns on its hinges, so a sluggard turns in his bed. As a sluggard buries his hand in the dish because he's too lazy to bring it back to his mouth. If you combined nature's sloth with scripture's sluggard, you get a popular synonym for this sin. It's laziness. When we think of sloth, we think of laziness. And when we think of laziness, we certainly don't think of ourselves, because if anything, 21st century living is busy, not lazy, right? Sloth, laziness, isn't our sin. Or is it? In our culture, the sin of sloth hides in busy activity. We do, 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 do lots of things, but we do them while neglecting or bailing on our responsibilities. So we are often slothful. We're often lazy about the most important things of life because we've given up on them, or we've neglected them, or we've just been too distracted by other busy things in our lives. Turn in your Bible, if you have one, to the last chapter of the Gospel of John, chapter 21. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along on the screens. We've also put an outline in your weekly welcome so you can take some notes and follow along as we progress. In John 21, we encounter an episode that, while not mentioning sloth explicitly, perfectly captures four aspects of sloth. So follow along as I read John chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. Afterward... Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also called Didymus, Nathanael from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Four aspects of sloth. Number one, sloth's design. Sloth's design. If you're taking notes, write that in. We're going to do a little bit of scene setting as we prepare to study this passage. As the first verse of this section makes clear, this event happens after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And as a result, you would think that the disciples would be excited to go out and get on with Jesus' mission. But that's not what we find here. And upon a little reflection, it's not hard to see why. I want to invite you to put yourself in the shoes of Peter, the main character in this passage, because then we'll feel what's going on. For Peter, the last several weeks have served as kind of a roller coaster. Jesus, this guy that he's been following for three years, was arrested, tried, and he was put to death by crucifixion. So for three days, discouragement settled in Peter's bones. He, along with the other disciples, these guys were hoping that Jesus would become a victorious king and that he would need some of them to populate his cabinet. 
things didn't turn out like they thought they would. For a few minutes, though, their discouragement is turned upside down because they find out that Jesus has been raised from the dead. But just as quickly, fear begins to settle in because then they start to feel like the same guys who crucified Jesus might be coming after those spreading rumors of resurrection. But then their fear is overcome because Jesus shows up multiple times and he commissions them. But just as quickly as this mission comes off of Jesus' lips, you'd have to imagine a level of overwhelming responsibility settling down on them. How are we, just this few people, going to spread this message about Jesus all over the world? So in the course of just a few days, Peter is overcome by discouragement and then fear and then overwhelming responsibility. And added to all of that, was Peter's personal failure, the weight of his failure. Three times Peter had the opportunity to stand up for Jesus, to support him, but instead he denied even knowing him. I think if we were to interview Peter at that moment, in this moment of chaotic and confusing time in his life, he'd say, I just didn't see, I just didn't see things going this way. I didn't think it was going to turn out this way. My guess is that's probably the same story for many of us here today. We might respond in a similar way about our lives. In some cases, that's the case because we've been uh, marked by personal failure or setbacks as well. It's rocked everything in our lives. For some of us, it's just the realization that the excitement of life wanes over time, and it just takes a lot of work to keep fanning the flame. In both cases, life's commitments, whether it's a marriage or parenting or your occupation, your job, your work life, your spiritual life, your school life, it takes a turn towards discouragement and fear, maybe failure, weariness, and rather than sticking to our commitments, we're tempted to bail out. It's just too hard. It just takes too much effort. And so we turn our attention to lots of other things to possibly just distract us from the most important things. So how did Peter respond in this moment? When this moment presented itself, what did he do? Take a look at the first half of verse 3 in chapter 21. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. Hmm. Peter's response is puzzling. Bible scholars have spilled a lot of ink trying to understand what motivated Peter's decision to get into that boat. On one side of the debate, you have scholars that are saying that Peter is turning his back on Jesus completely at this point. Since he was a fisherman before he started following Rabbi Jesus, he's going back to his fishing occupation. He's so discouraged, he's failed so huge that he's throwing in the towel, he's bailing on Jesus, and he's bailing on the mission that Jesus gave him. On the other end of the spectrum, you have these scholars who say that Peter is simply aware of the fact that even though Jesus has been risen from the dead, and even though there's this enormous mission to accomplish, he's still got to eat. And so the guy's getting in a boat, he's got to go fishing because the day-to-day life still has to go on. This is an innocent decision, not some major rebellion. I think that the truth is somewhere between these two options. If you view this as a spectrum, I'd place myself near the first option. I think Peter is bailing by going fishing, but I'd want to pull this a little bit closer to center. Let me give you several reasons why I think Peter is bailing. First, everything that happens in this episode serves as a way to renew Peter's calling. The focus of this passage is renewal. Second, 
both in this miraculous catch of fish and the conversation that follows, we'll look at both in just a few minutes, Jesus corrects Peter. Peter is off track, going the wrong direction, and Jesus intervenes. Third, I can't get over the fact that Jesus has been risen from the dead. This is a pretty incredible thing. Jesus is showing up appearances to his disciples multiple times. A pretty incredible thing. And then he gives them this huge mission to accomplish. And he sends them out to go do it. Another pretty incredible thing. So how do you reconcile that with the fact that these guys are in a boat all night? I'd put myself in the first category, but I want to change the motivation. I think Peter is bailing on Jesus' mission. He's going back to his old occupation of fishing, but he's not doing it out of rebellion. I think he's doing it out of sloth. As we've seen, Peter is discouraged, he's despairing, he's disillusioned, he's overwhelmed by the weight of responsibility and by the weight of failure. He failed in following Jesus, but hey, I'm pretty good at this fishing thing. This is a simple case of sloth's design to distract us. He's avoiding the task that Jesus has given him by focusing on something, anything other than that task. Sloth's design is to get us off mission. When we started this series, we said that the desert fathers, these guys way long ago, spent a lot of time thinking about the causes and effects of the seven deadly sins. When they came to the sin of sloth, they nicknamed it the noonday demon. Because by the halfway point of any given day, these guys were demotivated to go after anything that they'd committed to. The things like prayer and Bible study and worship and service. And so what they would say is it would be really difficult if if a monk would glance out the window in the midst of having to stick to the task, the thing that they're committed to do. If he glances out the window, he might be tempted sloth-like to leave the mission of monkhood and go back to the thriving city. He wants to have life there because it's an option now. It's open to me. One of these desert fathers wrote this of sloth, this noonday demon. He said, sloth instills in the monk a hatred of the place, a hatred of his very life itself, a hatred for labor. He depicts life stretching out for a long period of time and brings before the mind's eye the toil of struggle and leaves no leaf unturned to induce the monk to forsake his cell and drop out of the fight. Procrastination, neglect, distraction, hopelessness, discouragement, sloth convinces us that God can't possibly use us to do anything. So why should we try at all? Sloth convinces us that everything is going to take too much work. Sloth convinces us to put everything off until tomorrow, that glorious day when everything is going to get done. As I reflect back on my life over the past year, I realize that a sloth has been hanging around. It's my wife, Rachel. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's me. I'm a pretty productive guy. So I'm surprised that I found this sin being committed regularly in my life. Now, I'm an on-off person when it comes to tasks. If I'm going after something, I want to be really good at it. And if I can't be really, really good at it, maybe even the best at it, then I don't want to give it any effort at all. But in the past year, lots of things changed for me. My my responsibilities increased and shifted here at the church. I started graduate school. My wife and I were entering the sixth year of our marriage. We were going to be moving. We were going to be having this baby who's now arrived. 
This is a lot of stuff. And so noticing and recognizing that I'm finite, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do it all. Slowly but surely, I got really, really overwhelmed by all of the responsibility. And rather than chipping away at all of the things that I needed to do, I got more and more anxious. And as a result of getting more and more anxious, I just stopped wanting to do any of the stuff that God was calling me to do. I was getting hopeless and frustrated and even fearful at times about how all of this stuff was going to get attended to. And what I realized was neglect and procrastination and distraction became coping mechanisms for me. Another way to say sinful habits. I was neglecting my responsibilities because I was so overwhelmed by the weight of it all. How am I going to even scratch the surface? I was doing sinning by sin of sloth, and I didn't even know it. Sloth's design is to overwhelm us, to distract us, to get us off of our mission. Peter got into a boat. That's sloth's design. Here's number two. Sloth's result. Sloth's result. If you're a fan of the show Everybody Loves Raymond, you probably remember the famous episode of The Suitcase. Do you remember this? Here's the skinny for those of you who don't know. Deborah and Ray go away for a weekend. And Deborah wants to take this suitcase with them so they can pack all their stuff, obviously, in it. But Ray thinks that this is completely unnecessary. So when they return home, the suitcase needs to move from the lower level to the upper level. But Ray doesn't want to do it because he didn't want to take it in the first place. So an argument ensues, and Deborah thinks to herself, he's going to be going on a business trip soon, so I will wait. I'm not moving it if he's not going to move it. I will wait until he uses it or moves it before I touch that stupid thing. Two weeks pass. The suitcase is still sitting on the landing. And Ray's brother Robert comes over, and he sees the suitcase, and he's about to go on his honeymoon, so he asks Ray if he can borrow the suitcase, and Ray fills him in on this whole two weeks' worth of neglecting his responsibility to stick it to his wife. He tells him this is battle over the wills, over the principle of whose responsibility it is to move this suitcase. Well, eventually, after multiple ploys to get each other to move the suitcase, Ray decides to be the big man and to take care of the responsibility. But Deborah recognizes his strategy. And so a new battle of the wills unfolds over who's actually going to now have the joy of doing their duty. The whole episode is hilarious, and it's completely and totally ridiculous. Both Ray and Deborah, like we often are, are stubbornly doing a whole lot of work to avoid doing a little bit of work. And in the end, neither of them had anything to show for it. In fact, both of them were worse off because they didn't utilize the opportunity to serve one another. That's just like sloth. It tells us that we will be better off by not doing anything at all or doing anything but the thing that we're supposed to do. But in reality we end up with nothing. You end up empty-handed. Take a look again at John 21, verse 3. Peter declares his plan. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out, and they got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Sloth results in empty nets. And that's super frustrating for these guys, especially in light of the fact that it says that night they caught nothing. This time indicator is extremely helpful because it underscores the amount of time these guys were out in that boat going after this task of fishing. 
And this was a whole lot of work, throwing out these nets, heavy and large, over and over again for several hours. They're doing a lot of work, a lot of activity to avoid work of a different kind, to avoid their mission. This time indicator also underscores the fact that this decision to go fishing isn't just a random, hey, let's go have some fun, let's go get some food decision, but it was, in fact, an intentional decision to go back to their previous occupation. And here's why. Night fishing in the Sea of Galilee was a strategic means to get some serious fish. These guys knew what they were doing. They invested a night at the most opportune time when the fish were biting so that in the morning they could pull up to the market with a boat full of fish. Business relaunched, getting this whole thing going again. This was a lengthy investment of time, a strategic decision that netted them nothing. They caught nothing. They invested in this task to get away from other weighty responsibilities, but in the end it didn't provide rest or relief from any of the burdens that sent them onto the sea. That's sloth. One author wrote this about sloth. He says, the irony of sloth is that it isn't even refreshing. You never talk to someone who says, I vegged out in front of the TV last night from dinner to bedtime, and it was such a life-enhancing experience. I woke up so full of vigor and energy, and I just feel so alive. It never happens. It's dead on. Rather than rest or relief or refreshment, sloth produces regret. You just see these guys coming in just weary after a long night of avoidance by activity, feeling a sense of regret. This whole night was wasted. Sloth results in emptiness. It produces regret, opportunities squandered. While I was getting ready to become a parent, lots of people explained their stories or their pieces of advice to me. One particular guy shared a story to me. He said it wasn't really an advice as much as it was a regret of his that he didn't want me to have. He said, my son is in his 20s now, and when he was a baby, I would let my wife do most of the nighttime stuff. I wouldn't really hold him then. Occasionally I would, and it would be so great to look into his eyes, but I didn't do very much of that. And now, looking at him in this this stage of life, I just really wish I would have done more of that. And that really marked me. You know, in the last two and a half weeks, only two and a half weeks, I have been so tempted on regular occasions to just give Charlotte over to Rachel or to find myself distracted by wanting to watch TV or texting somebody or wanting to be doing something on my app rather than engaging with this child, doing my responsibility. Doing what we are called to do produces rewards in our lives. I can honestly say, and most of you who do this would also agree, that you've never regretted reading your Bible. You've never regretted spending time in prayer or sharing your faith or worshiping God or working hard or showing compassion or sticking to a commitment or serving somebody in some way. It's worth it. It produces a reward, but sloth sloth results in emptiness. It results in regret. It just leaves us with empty nets. Regrets. Emptiness. That's the result. Number three, sloth's weakness. These guys have been up all night fishing. They haven't caught a single fish. Pick up the story in verses four through six. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. 
He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Now, some of you who've been around church for a little while or some of you who've read your Bibles might be experiencing some deja vu right now. This sounds kind of familiar. And that sounds really familiar because a very similar scene unfolded at the beginning of Peter's relationship with Jesus when he first met Jesus. Luke records this for us in Luke chapter 5. It's a very similar instance. The disciples have been fishing all night. They were unable to catch anything. And so Jesus says, hey, how's the fishing going? These guys are like, hey, it stinks. And he says, okay, throw your, your net over to the other side of the boat and then you'll catch some stuff. And I'm sure out of some respect, but also a little bit of frustration, like who does this guy think he is? They do this anyway and they catch this enormous amount of fish. And Luke writes this about Peter's response to this. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. And Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now in John 21, we have this miracle repeated, and it's designed to intentionally jog Peter's memory. It was as if Jesus was saying to Peter, Hey, back then, Peter... You surrendered to me. Back then you gave, I gave you a mission. And back then you committed to that mission. And now when it matters most, are you going to keep your commitment? It's not easy for us to keep our commitments in life. Because as someone has said, the trouble with life is that it's daily. It takes a huge amount of effort day in and day out to keep the big picture in mind and to keep working on the day in and day out commitments to bring that picture into fruition. Life is about small decisions to make commitments to things that matter and then to keep those commitments. Sloth's weakness is to remember the commitments that you've made. When we look back at our commitments, then we turn the tables on sloth. What I love about this passage in John 21 is that Jesus takes Peter back to the moment of commitment to remind him of the beginning, when it all started. See, sloth is strong. If we're going to weaken sloth, which we need to do if we're ever going to talk about curing it, then we need to revisit the point of commitment and use that memory to nudge us out of our apathy. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. About a year ago, a guy in our church contacted me to discuss some special plans that he was putting together for his wedding anniversary. He explained to me that year after year, he and his wife go away to celebrate, and during those days, they listen to some stuff about marriage, a message on marriage, and then they recite their vows to one another again. They go over the commitment again. They remember the first time they said these things. And he was asking me if I would record this for them so they could listen to it, and then they could recite their vows to one another. See what, see what it does? An anniversary, an anniversary marks the spot. An anniversary forces us to remember what we said then. It forces us to remember our commitments and then to commit to keep those commitments. We need anniversaries for like everything in life. This can apply to all sorts of stuff. Now, how do I start to weaken sloth in my work life? Well, think back to the commitment that you made. You know, chances are for most of us, when we started off on our jobs, whatever job that is, we were happy to have a job, and we were thankful to get going on something, and so we were a little bit excited to get it going, and, and we showed up that first day, and we committed to do a good job, and then over time, slowly but surely, the excitement sorts of fades away, and we don't really feel like going anymore, we don't really, it's too much work, and so we give a half 
effort to it. Even though we committed, even though we committed to give ourselves to it. If we revisit that commitment, it nudges us out of our apathy. You can do that with a ministry that you've committed to to serve in. You can do that with a workout plan that you've started and have not followed through on. You can do that with a sin area that maybe even in this series you've committed. I'm going to deal with this sin. One of the things that we've already covered in this series maybe. Think back to that commitment and allow that commitment to remind you of what you said then. So you can get started on it again. You could do this with your spiritual life actually as a whole. Do you remember the day when you turned to Jesus rather than your sin? Seeking forgiveness and new life through his cross. And you said like Peter did, Jesus, I would give up everything. I'll give it all up to follow you. So with excitement, you launch off into this vibrant relationship with Jesus and you find yourself spending time reading the Bible and you're spending time in prayer and it's fresh and exciting, it's convicting, it's life-changing. You're sharing this with people in your life. I'm I'm just being changed by Jesus. You were on mission, committed to it. So what changed? Jesus didn't change and the mission didn't change. We succumb to the sin of sloth. In most every area of our lives, we make commitments, and then slowly but surely, sloth works away at us. And Jesus takes Peter and us back to that day so that we can remember our commitment to him and begin rekindling it. That activity, that practice, weakens sloth, and it prepares us for the cure. Number four. Sloth's cure. After this nice breakfast on the beach, Jesus takes Peter on for a walk. Look at their conversation recorded in verses 15 through 17. When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him, the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. And you can't help but notice the repetition here. Jesus asks Peter three questions. Peter responds three times. The question is, why does John use his limited space to include this event to this amount of repetition? Some have responded that the conversation is meant to reverse Peter's three denials. So we we see three questions, and they match these three denials. And I'm sure that that plays a part in this. But I'm also not sure why Jesus would have to ask him three times just in order to reinstate him. I think there's a better, better explanation that fits this context. Jesus is using three questions for emphasis. He's seeking to free Peter from distraction and discouragement and the overwhelming weight of failure by drawing his attention to what he's supposed to be about. Look carefully again at verse 15. Jesus asks, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? More than these? What is Jesus referring to? Peter followed Jesus in order to become a fisher of people, not fish. But here in John 21, he's in a boat, he's off mission, and he's fishing for fish, not people. Jesus is asking if Peter is about fish or people now. 
Here's what Jesus is driving at. Peter, if you love me like you say you do, then you're going to live it. You're going to show it. Peter, if you love me like you say you do, then you're going to be obedient to the mission. You're not going to bail on it. If you love me like you say you do, you'll care about what I care about. If you love me, you'll care about what I care about. People. Jesus goes straight to the heart. Sloth's cure is love. To care enough to spend myself for the things that matter most. Sloth is a lack of love. I don't care enough to act where and when it's needed most. I don't do the things that need to be done when they need to be done because I don't feel like it or it's going to take too much work or it won't make any difference anyway. Sloth puts forth no effort to love at all. Author Dorothy Sayers describes sloth as the sin which believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, interferes with nothing, enjoys nothing, loves nothing, hates nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there's nothing it would die for. That's sloth. By way of contrast, the Apostle Paul famously wrote, Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In John 21, Peter heard Jesus' gracious words and responded by loving him, by caring about what he cared about. He spent his life everything he had to care for people, to build the church, to engage the mission. Peter said goodbye to sloth and nets and boats and people on this beach. What is the great object that occupies your life? What is the great problem that you're here to tackle? Why are you still here? What does God have for you to do? Immediately, sloth draws our attention to the fact that we're too busy to get at that thing, or we don't have the energy for it, or the task is too big, or we convince ourselves that we're not really wired to tackle it after all. Don't give in to that stuff. What great objects, to use Wilberforce's phrase, has God placed before you? What things can you, by God's enablement, tackle with the best energy of your life? If you're a Christ follower, your call is to make disciples, to introduce people to Jesus, and to help them become more like him. So are you on mission, or have you bailed? Has the sin of sloth slowly pulled you away from the great mission of your life, the thing that is to occupy all of our energy? What is the thing that you're going to be about? Under the banner of making disciples, what ministry are you going to get involved in this fall as we launch another ministry year? Guys, who are you going to invite to fuel? what, What go team are any of you going to go on this year? What need will you give yourself to, your whole life to? Loving people, loving God, turning the tables on sloth. And pull the rug out from apathy and laziness. What great thing is going to occupy your life? 
Sloth's design is to distract us, but we respond with diligence. Sloth's result is, is regret, but we go after the reward. Sloth's weakness is commitment over complacency, and sloth's cure is love over laziness. Jesus looks at Christ's community church gathered on all four campuses and says, Do you love me? If you love me, you'll care about what I care about. You'll give everything for the mission. You'll engage the mission of loving people, loving me, and getting after it. So what are you about? 